Hello, welcome back. Today, I'm very happy to speaking with Dr. Julio Meza, Program Director for the UCLA Addiction Medicine Fellowship and Assistant Professor for Family Medicine. Dr. Meza will share his expertise on opioid use disorder. Thank you, Dr. Meza, for being with us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Pleasure to be here. Great. Let's begin. Where do opioids come from? Opioids, they're known as alkaloids, uh, substances that you can extract from the uses of the uh, poppy seed capsule. There is a lot of uh, different theories around the poppy seeds specifically, but when we look at the opium plant, pretty much it has these kind of like ball-like structures at the tip of the plant, which is the fruit. So when you open that, definitely it's going to have these milky juices inside from which you can extract the natural occurring opiates, for example, morphine and codeine. So how do opioids work on the brain? So the way in which opioids act, whether these are the naturally occurring, like the ones we produce regularly, or the ones that we can obtain out of the, uh, as I mentioned before, the poppy seed capsule or even the synthetics, they're going to attach to at least four different receptors in our brain. And each one of these receptors has different specific locations. Depending on the receptor they attach to, that will be the potential for the way in which they exert most of their uh, activity. All of them, they do share the capacity to produce analgesia, so definitely they work fairly well for pain. But for example, some of these receptors are the ones that may lead to the undesirable effects of opioids. Example, constipation, some people can get nausea, headaches as well. Needless to say, the the ones that we fear the most, like respiratory depression and potential death. Some other receptors, they may not cause marked symptoms like the ones I just described, but they can cause something like, for example, dysphoria, in which is going to be a really intense change in mood and behavior. Usually this labile mood in which anxiety and depression, they're pretty intertwined. So definitely all of them can produce analgesia, but as well, depending on the type of uh, receptor being stimulated, we can have some other signs and symptoms. Hmm. Can you give us the names of some commonly prescribed opioids? And how do these rank in terms of potency and addiction potential? So pretty much some of the most common ones we're going to have Norco. The actual compound is called hydrocodone. Then we have also oxycodone. We have hydromorphone and morphine. Also, we can have fentanyl as we also have that one for potential medical uses. The potential for a person to develop a use disorder or to be able to continue utilizing opioids and even misuse them, it depends a lot, just as something you will mention, right? It's a potency, but also the duration in which they are going to act in our body. Most of the substances that we as human beings, we have the capacity to at some point develop dependence is more likely to occur when they have really short action. Example, Hydromorphone, also known as dilaudid, has that capacity to be really short-acting type of opioid. So it's really easy to become dependent to it. Same thing is with fentanyl as well. Potency-wise, fentanyl will be at the top, and especially its isoforms. And then you're going to have dilaudid being another one who is on that ladder just below fentanyl. Then you're going to have oxycodone. After that, you're going to have hydrocodone and also morphine sharing a similar strength. Thank you. Let's switch gears for a little bit and talk about heroin. What forms does it come in and what does it look like? 
Mm-hmm. So heroin usually it can be found as a either white powder, which it tended to be at least until 2017 or yeah, 2016, 2017, most commonly found, especially in the East Coast. Right here in the West Coast, we used to see more often what is known as black tar heroin. And the way in which it's made is different. So definitely you can have, especially in the West Coast, you still see it, but it's less than what we used to before. This uh, dark component, it looks like charcoal, like wet charcoal. That's kind of what it looks like. And then in case of other type of heroin that tended to be more prevalent in the East Coast, but now pretty much we have it here as well, is more of a talk kind of looking powder. So what are some of the common street names for heroin? Mm-hmm. So you're going to have names such as age, dope, definitely black tar, horse is going to be another one, especially for the one that now we see the white powder is going to be called China white quite often as well. So those are the most common ones that you are to see. And how do people become addicted to heroin or other opioids? So yeah, so how do we become, yeah, how do we become addicted to it? So definitely before I answer to that question, right, I definitely want to make a clear understanding in between two two terms that some occasions we use interchangeably, but actually they're really different. One of them is dependence, and the other one is addiction, or as we call it, because even nowadays we're going to look in every textbook, pretty much the word addiction has been replaced for substance use disorder. So dependence refers to the need or the, the requirement of a substance in order to continue to have normal functioning. That means, for example, that after an opioid enters our body, we have the capacity that after an expected length of time, that depending on the resources that you read, right, it can be, in some of them they describe that it can be as short as five days. I haven't seen that many of those patients in which it tends to occur. But for the most part, after 14 days of consistently using an opioid, your body can be dependent, meaning that at the moment in which the opioid is removed, you're going to undergo withdrawal. Does that mean that a person has an addiction? Not necessarily, because addiction refers to the use of a substance independently of mounting negative consequences, in which one of the characteristics is dependence, but it's not just that. This dependence is going to make the patient to actually seek uh, relief, especially from the withdrawal symptoms, by looking to utilize an opioid independently of the negative aspects that this might bring to their life. Now, How do we become dependent to start, okay, and potentially addicted? So as an opioid enters our body, it's going to definitely produce some analgesia, as I mentioned before, depending on the receptor it's going to attach to. But added to that, it's going to cause also changes in our mood and behavior because also it's going to act on some other specific systems within our brain. Also, they have the capacity to create some euphoria. The continuum of stimulation of these receptors and the continuum of producing these specific effects is what it tends to make people feel better, right? Like if you have pain, definitely you have relief. If you have, to some extent, some dysphoria, you might feel a little bit better if you have some euphoria as a result of the opioid. So after you have been utilizing this opioid in consistent fashion, you come back and you try to remove it the logical consequence is going to be the potential for withdrawal. And the problem with withdrawal is that it's so negative and uncomfortable that definitely 
the person is going to seek to relieve the symptoms that withdrawal is going to lead to because it's going to be definitely pretty accentuated anxiety, irritability, diarrhea, lots of body aches. A lot of patients, they describe this coldness inside their bones, like their bones are breaking pretty much. So in order to find relief from these specific symptoms is when some individuals would like to or will are going to look to pretty much get an opioid in order to relieve them because that's the only thing that is going to treat them according in a really quick fashion, right? By doing so, either it's going to deplete their financial stability, potentially can affect their family life, friendships as well, right? And even work because the longer a person is having a problem with independence, the effect of the opioid becomes shorter and shorter. So if before it used to be a whole day to get withdrawals, over time, withdrawal is going to appear within the day and definitely is going to affect different facets of their life. Thank you. Going back to heroin for just a minute, how does its potency compare to that of some of the prescription opioids you mentioned? Uh, so when it comes to the potency, it's similar. Uh, more than anything, what it plays a role is amount, okay? For example, heroin is honestly a derivative of morphine, right? Which is what we use for pain in our hospitals and clinics. But definitely the amount that we normally utilize on patients with chronic pain or even acute pain, right, is what it will be considered a small amount. It's different some occasions to what some occasions we might get in non-prescribed fashion, like, for example, heroin. The amount definitely will be different, meaning that the more you have, more potent the whole compound itself is going to become. Not necessarily because the, the substance is stronger than what we have in clinics, or in hospitals, but it's just the sheer total dose. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, definitely it's different with fentanyl, right? Fentanyl is way more potent than heroin, so yeah. So what are some of the long-term health consequences of chronic opioid use? Mm-hmm. So if we speak specifically of the long-term consequences of opioid use, um, first thing, it will depend on the way in which it's being utilized. So if someone is smoking opioids or if someone is using, is using them intranasally, there are some rare consequences, but definitely we can see them. One of them is that some people, they can develop some infarcts, meaning dead tissue in some specific areas of the brain. I have seen a couple of those in my own practice already. Then if injected, definitely we have more chances for infections on the area where the substance is being injected as well. Infections that can be localized only to the skin, potentially to their blood vessels, potentially to their heart, right? And cause something called endocarditis that can be fatal. Also, some occasions you can have these bacteria to move all the way to the spine and cause uh, definitely complications in that area. So the infectious conditions are definitely to take into account. Now, what else can occur? Directly related to opioids themselves, for example, opioids, when used chronically, they can affect the way in which some hormones are being produced in our brain to the point that some patients may have maybe some uh, hypogonadism. They can have some low testosterone levels. They can have potentially some effects on their uh, reproductive areas, specifically when it comes to performance and even the capacity to reproduce as well. Inflammatory processes as well can be dampened due to the chronic use of opioids. A little gland that is on top of our kidney also can be affected with chronic use of opioids. I have seen a good number of patients who have endured such uh, complications. 
So pretty much, as you can see, it's not just necessarily the fact of the way in which it's being utilized, but opiates themselves also, they can act and affect the way in which some hormone systems can work normally in our body. Hmm. And acutely, what are the symptoms of an opioid overdose and how do we treat that? So the manifestations of opioid overdose, usually we're going to see that the patient definitely has a degree of consciousness that is completely diminished, right? So someone won't be alert, it's going to be more than anything what we call lethargic sometimes, which implies that is a person who's extremely drowsy, difficult to arouse, likely non-responsive to either verbal or physical stimuli, and also decreased respiratory, decreased respiratory rate and, and respiratory effort as well. So... Definitely, those are usually the signs and symptoms to a point in which a person definitely can completely stop breathing. And in that specific situation, right, even their heart potentially stop. So the way to revert an opioid overdose will be by utilizing a opioid antagonist, meaning something that will be the antidote to that opioid. At the moment, we definitely have one that is really effective. It's called naloxone, which for the most part is extremely easy to use. Uh, we can use it intranasally, meaning a little spray inside the nose, similar to the allergy sprays that are readily available all over the place. And also there is an injectable form that we can use on the person's thigh. It works extremely well, but that doesn't mean that once we have the we have reverted an overdose, we need to stop there. We still need to call the emergency medical services because depending on the opioid being used by the victim, in this case, they might require extra doses of naloxone, whereas in the hospital, some occasions, even we have to put them on what we call a drip, which is an IV infusion of naloxone for X amount of time to revert completely the overdose. So going back to opioid withdrawal, and you already talked about some of the symptoms, but mm-hmm. is it dangerous for the individual? Most of the bibliography out there will tell you that it's not, okay? But definitely there is a caveat. Everything will depend on comorbid conditions on a patient. Example, if you have someone like my age, say uh, I'm 39, I do not have any chronic medical conditions, the likelihood to be fatal for a person like me is highly unlikely. Totally different if you were to, let's say you have Julio Mesa, at age 65, for example, but at this point, I might have maybe coronary artery disease, right? Maybe I have congestive heart failure in which opioid withdrawal is not just the physical symptoms that we see, also the heart rate is going to increase. That means that there will be an extra load for our heart to deal with. So if I have a compromised heart, that can potentially be fatal for me, right? Definitely opioid withdrawal can lead me to have a heart attack, potentially be fatal. On some patients in which they have abnormal heart rhythms, needless to say, an opioid withdrawal episode can cause definitely an abnormal heart rhythm and depending on the type, might be fatal as well. So definitely in the majority of the population without comorbidities, it's extremely uncomfortable, not going to deny that, but it's unlikely to be fatal. But there are some patients that depending on some other uh, medical conditions that might, they might be dealing with, whether these ones are physical or even mental, patients with severe mental health conditions who are not completely well treated, right? They can go into an actual psychotic breakdown, potentially suicidal ideation as a result of how uncomfortable the opioid withdrawal is. You've talked a little bit about fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Can you discuss how it's contributed to overdose deaths? Okay. So 
fentanyl pretty much the reason for which has contributed to overdose death is due to the fact that it's so potent. Mm -hmm. So fentanyl is deemed to be 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. The problem with that, right, is that you need a smaller amount to overdose, right? Just to give an example, we need 100 of the total dose of potentially to be lethal of heroin to be able to overdose with fentanyl. So you need a smaller amount. And the problem is that out there when obtaining fentanyl in non-prescribed fashion, you can never be sure on how much you're receiving, okay? So that's the tricky part, right? What you might deem, okay, this is a small amount. I'll just use a little bit so I won't overdose, right? That might be enough to actually cause a demise. So it has to do a lot with uh, the potency itself of fentanyl. And can opioid use disorder be treated? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely there are really good treatments for opioid use disorder. And it's one of those things in which we have medications that work really well for this condition. I'm a family medicine physician, as you well mentioned before, right? And we have so many conditions out there in medicine in which you have a plethora of medications and some of them work, some of them you need to mix three or four medications to finally obtain the desired results, right? For opioid use disorder, we have solid medications that work even on their own or maybe utilized with uh, some other adjuvant medications. Example, the ones that are the standard of care as of this moment for someone who has history and diagnosis of opioid use disorder are going to be full mu agonist therapy, which is pretty much methadone. And the other one is what we call partial opioid agonist therapy with a medication called buprenorphine. So pretty much what is performed, right, is a substitution of the non-prescribed opioid for medications that have really good studies that prove the efficacy and safety of them when utilized in adequate fashion, whether it is methadone in this case, in which the patient, and this is due to federal, federal regulation, for opioid use disorder, they have to go to a methadone clinic to get it dispensed, also known as opioid treatment facility. With COVID, uh, there is a lot of more flexibility nowadays because back then, uh, patients needed to go in dose, meaning receive their dose every day to the opioid treatment facility. Nowadays, you have the capacity to potentially have easier chance to have what we call take homes, right, which is multiple days that you can just take home and utilize accordingly. With buprenorphine or partial opioid agonist therapy is extremely effective as well, extremely safe, especially because it has something called a ceiling effect, meaning that it's really, really hard to overdose on it. And compared to methadone, the advantage is that you can obtain that also at an opioid treatment facility if desired, but also physicians can dispense or, or actually prescribe these ones at an office. So it makes it easier to access nowadays. Are there any newer treatments also being studied? Yes, definitely. There is a lot on the pipeline, right? And there are encouraging results from the majority of them, especially when it comes to the management of withdrawal symptoms, okay? Most of the treatments being studied right now is a spe uh, the best results we have. Therefore, that specific acute event in which is the withdrawal, right? I was reading all these articles in which pretty much that's what, for the most part, we have really good results, not for long-term therapy. But the majority of them, they have, they have been exactly the same as placebo on allowing people to refrain from the use of opioids. Example of these uh, therapies, for example, we are going to have ketamine has been studied, ibogaine has been studied as well, 
uh, DMT. There are some studies going on with that. Needless to say, something that is becoming more popular, like cannabinoids, whether it's in the form of CBD or THC, also they have been studied. But as I mentioned, for withdrawal management, they seem to have fair results, and I'm not going to deny that. But at the end of the day, withdrawal, the management of withdrawal on a patient is the initial portion of that crisis that the patient is living. After we move on from that, we need to think on long-term therapy for patients so we can refrain from the use of non-prescribed opioids and definitely save that life. And none of these therapies as of this moment has shown any improvement compared to placebo on the potential from uh, refraining from opioid use. And finally, are there ways that we can prevent opioid addiction? Uh, Yeah, the most important thing definitely is going to be one, really good education, right, on how opioids work and uh, their mechanism of action, right? Also to be able to describe to individuals that there are services out there, like, for example, I'm here at UCLA, and definitely there are some multiple colleagues here in Los Angeles who can treat opioid use disorder because the problem on some occasions is that we try not to mention and disclose this to our youth. And the problem is that curiosity is a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Are opioids that bad? Well, who knows, right? Maybe I need to try in order to be able to see how bad they may be, right? And that might come to lead to negative consequences. Same thing can happen to an adult as well, right? So as we continue to ed- educate ourselves, right, that treatment is available there, but also to explain in detail how these substances work, that is something that will definitely be a big portion of prevention, right? Because when you just create a stigma or make a topic a taboo, it tends just to explode more than actually be easy to deal with. Hmm. Thank you so much again for this very informative session, Dr. Meza. And I hope you can join us again in the future. Oh, definitely. If you invite me, I'll be available for you. Great. Thank you.